So hello and welcome to the Unequal Exchange podcast. And today we're joined by Ariman. Ariman, uh, please feel free to introduce yourself. We'll be discussing your article on semiconductors and tech transfer. Uh, so hi, uh, I'm Ariman. I am a master's student of sociology at the Delhi School of Economics at the University of Delhi. Um, I work with Collective, which is a, a student youth revolutionary organization in India. You can check their work out uh, if you're interested in Indian politics and student movements in India. Uh, and I'm interested in world systems, unequal exchange, uh, questions of imperialism, but I have a specific focus on the semi-periphery. I find the semi-periphery, I mean, being from India, uh, to be, and of course, with the current context of the world, to be my, my field of interest. Uh, yeah. Great. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe first of all, we can just introduce the article. Aramin, how would you explain, like, what is the, what would you say is the goal of your article? Um, why did you write the article? So, um, I mean, the reason that the article came out is a pretty interesting case. Uh, even though the bulk of the article deals with China, the actual motivating factor for the paper came from India because, um, well, in the last one year or so, India, I mean, actually, it's been a thing for, for nearly a decade where India has kind of pushed for, I mean, by India, I mean, the government of India has pushed for this idea of make in India and this idea of uh, India has to start manufacturing and producing and has to, you know, kind of move up in the world in that sense. And that's been the rhetoric from the government in some ways. Uh, and the actual motivating factor for the paper was uh, in February of 2023, uh, India puts out its, its annual uh, budget, the government budget. And uh, for the first time, India put out a very clearly like section part that was for semiconductor production with the goal of producing semiconductors in India. Uh, and I mean, the amount might not look a lot uh, from you know, the numbers that we see in the West, but uh, 3,000 crore rupees, which is about, um, I think about, you would say nearly 400 million USD was set, out, set aside specifically for uh, promoting manufacturing in India. Uh, and a year or so before, in 2022, that was a big, uh, I mean, it was big national news in India, uh, Vedanta, which is an Indian corporation, teamed up with Foxconn, which is, of course, one of the biggest in the world in, its, in, its, uh, in, in contracting for the Indian sections, uh, put forward a $20 billion bid to the Indian government uh, uh, to open up, you know, India's first proper manufacturing unit for semiconductors. Uh, and that was also big news because... Um, I mean, in India, there's this rhetoric that India has to move up in the sense, you know, that the, the usual India will be a superpower, India will achieve this and that. And this is considered a, a very core part of that, you know, that we will start, we will be the fourth, fifth country in the world to to really enter into production of high-end semiconductors, something which is like, you know, we want to be the envy of the world. Uh, and so in February, when this came out and, and the Indian government kind of re you know, restated their focus on this. And of course, within the context of the last five years of the US-China's whole conflict on the question of semiconductors and uh, sanctions and trade war and so on, I thought that it would be interesting to look at this question of, of, of how a specific industry and an industry that is a, a highly high tech, high, high profit, super important industry, uh, how, how like different countries try to enter it and what that has meant in the last decade. And uh, I mean, in my research, I realized that it's not just the last decade thing. It's a question of uh, many, many decades in the process of how uh, an industry that has a, a, a very, very high barrier of entry uh, does peripheralize. Um, and that was kind of the motivating factor for it, to kind of look at the reality of how it has peripheralized, um, who has been allowed to peripheralize, um, how 
China and India, for very, for very different reasons, by the way, have both had uh, serious setbacks in trying to enter into the industry. So that was kind of the motivating factor to understand that process. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I want to also pick up on that exact question of why you choose to use the world systems approach to understanding it. So you write specifically about the usefulness of, of taking an analysis of core and periphery and applying that to specific industries rather than just countries themselves. And, and the whole theme is around core monopolization of the semiconductor industry. But you also trace the process through which there is a possibility of peripheralizing these, whether in the production of them themselves, as you look at some of the companies like Fairchild that are the first on the frontier of offshoring. And yeah, more broadly discuss this big question of whether it would be possible for a semi-periphery to break into this core monopolized industry. Can you talk a little bit more about that that theme of, of how this more this one example is very much a, a great example of the broader process of neoliberal offshoring uh, production. Yeah, so um, I think the, the, the thing that's, that makes Wallstein's particularly more useful here is um, Wallstein likes to use this word a lot. He uses quasi-monopoly a lot when he talks about uh, um, um, what the core, what core processes actually entail. You know, he says that those those processes that are quasi-monopolized, that aren't open to free competition, that only some can do and not everyone can do, they tend to be what the coal does and what uh, um, uh, and the periphery on the other other hand, uh, it does what that which everybody can do. And I mean, uh, of course, I mean, an an Emmanuel unequal exchange perspective is slightly different, but uh, largely does this does seem to be largely true if you look at the fact that. Um, Agriculture, which is broadly something that has very low barrier to entry and everybody can do, is done uh, largely by the peripheries. Uh, whereas the more cutting edge, the more um, uh, monopolized sections are those you generally find in the core. Uh, the reason why this industry specifically is, uh, and, I, and I make a comparison with automobiles too in an earlier in one in a full section, uh, particularly highlights this core periphery separation and the monopolization that occurs is because. Um, when you trace the history of, of semiconductors or earlier than that, you look at automobiles. Uh, these are industries that came about by um, um, innovations and developments of new products, essentially, right? Uh, the kind of thing that uh, you would call the creative destruction or so on in other terms. You know, this, this new um, field that came up because of new technology, new innovation, new markets. Uh, and they essentially always emerged in the core. You, automobiles developed in the core, um, semiconductors developed in the core, and when you look at the process of how these have industries have developed as industries uh, and exactly how they spread to the rest of the world, you notice this very similar trend where, um, broadly speaking, the, the corporations of the core that formed the industry, that were the origin originators of the industry, continue to have a very dominating role much, much after the industry has peripheralized per se. Uh, and that peripheralization almost always entails uh, more or less uh, a very selective process of peripheralization, as in, you don't peripheralize the entire industry. The parts that you offshore to the rest of the world are those selective parts that it, that it makes sense to peripheralize. So in the context of uh, semiconductors, uh, in today's context, if you leave the history of how Taiwan and Korea and so on entered, the parts that are being done by um, the actual semi-periphery of today are those that are the complete, the sections that are uh, 
essentially the afterthought, you know, assembly and testing. And these are processes that are uh, uh, aren't really uh, the profitable or the big value or the important sections of the industry. You know, the holding of IP rights, development of new machinery, all of this is still done by the United States, by Netherlands, by Japan, Europe, and in, in general, right? You don't really see, uh, uh, for example, equipment is probably the best example in the semiconductors industry. Like equipment, the like capacity to make anything in the semiconductors industry, even testing or any other step, that entire process of uh, or the machinery that entails that process is still the rights to that and the development of that are still entirely held by the court. Uh, so when you look at it from a specific industry and you kind of map that specific industry's history and its okay and its geographical. Uh, development um, from a core periphery lens, uh, it kind of becomes, I mean, the arguments of world systems analysis or even unequal exchange or anything else really that speaks of this global differentiation becomes very, I mean, becomes much more easier to grasp. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's primarily why the world systems perspective is is very useful into in analyzing this. Um, yeah, I think uh, my, my question sort of follows on from what you were saying about the importance of the world systems uh, approach. And in your work, you introduce this, or you use this term of the core process, where you have the two examples of the automobile industry, uh, which used to be a core process, but no longer is a core process um, because various low-wage countries, Thailand, India, and other countries now specialize in this sector, where before it was monopolized by the high-wage countries. And then you also have the semiconductor industry, which is, uh, you sort of claim that it's the paradigmatic uh, core process in today's world, uh, monopolized by the high-wage countries. And um, the term core process has actually been, it's a very important term in Wallerstein and world systems analysis, but it's also been subject to, at least in Wallerstein, uh, it's been subject to some criticism as well, the way the Wallerstein uses it, for instance, because Wallerstein has a tendency often to not maybe satisfactorily define his terms, uh, although he gives gives very interesting sort of historical analyses, but his actual conceptual definitions are less satisfying than, say, Emmanuel's. Um, but I wanted your take, because, I mean, the, the term core process fascinates me as well, uh, and it's extremely an important term, I, I'd say, as well. Um, but how would you explain a core process and most importantly, my question is, how does um, specialization in a core process relate to the maintenance of high wages uh, throughout a given society? Um, what, what is the relation between this? That's my, that's my big question. Right. So, so high wages um, and the core process. Yes. Right. So um, in the comparison between semiconductors and automobiles, there is one thing that, I mean, is important to to state, and I make the argument in the paper too, uh, it's true that the, the, the majority of the production process in the automobiles industry has shifted to much of the semi-periphery. I mean, almost entirely done by the semi-periphery, China, India, Thailand, examples go on, right? Uh, but it's important to remember that largest players and the largest corporations are still core corporations in terms of uh, market reach, in terms of uh, income, in terms of size. It's all, I mean, the industry is still fundamentally uh, uh, monopolized by the core. And if you look at uh, like uh, the separation of the industry in terms of again and value added processes and other things, it's still hugely core biased. Uh, and I make that argument in the paper too, in the sense that, well, it's true that, yeah, like uh, the actual production of vehicles happens in the semi-periphery. The largest amount of production is still largely uh, controlled by the core and with the dictates of the core. Um, which isn't true in the, in the semiconductors industry as of now, uh, in the sense that it is wholly core monopolized from, I mean, like 95% of the processes occur in the core. 
which is which is an important difference. Uh, talking about wage differentiation and and how that plays into this. Um, well, of course, I mean the the logic of uh, of offshoring of of neoliberal offshoring in general has to do, of course, with wage differentiation and uh, and I mean taking from Emmanuel's uh, other work on technology. I mean it's. I mean, no matter if we are Marxists or we, we are critical of capitalism and so on, we have to understand the rationale of, of how uh, of how corporations work and and, and the draw of uh, of profit. And and I mean, fundamentally, when Emmanuel makes the argument for technology transfers, in, in a way, he's arguing that uh, the interstate system. Uh, is a regulatory factor for, for capitalism, but capitalism doesn't have to follow that rule. I mean, uh, when China, uh, uh, not China today, but China earlier invited the USSR for tech transfers, and then you have various other examples of the USSR itself inviting tech transfers, um, all of these things are, I mean, the interstate system is a regulatory system. It doesn't, uh, you can, can't prevent uh, processes of, of, of peripheralization necessarily. Uh, and that's, I mean, the later argument in the paper kind of deals with that question of how, um, of how the interstate system, I mean, in, in today's world, uh, the core is trying extremely hard. It's going out of its way to restrict the free market drastically uh, to prevent uh, peripheralization. Uh, but coming back to wage, uh, wage differentiation, um, I mean, of course, um, the question of wage differentiation is one that that is slightly related but slightly unrelated in the sense because, uh, well, it's absolutely true that, uh, for example, uh, the same labor done by, say, of the Ford factory workers in Detroit versus the Ford factory workers in semi periphery it's the same labor, but of course they're paid uh, a much, much, much lower wage. And uh, the history of that and the question of that is, of course, a whole other topic of the historical differentiation between the first world and third world and so on. Uh, but primarily what, uh, what this means is that ideally, Every industry would, in some form or the other, uh, when, when, of course, and that's again a question of the organic composition of capital and other such things. But uh, when labor costs, of course, in the third world are much lower than the first world, then corporations, of course, try their best to to leave. And in a sense, when when I talk about how the United States is, has given this two hundred billion dollar uh, uh, subsidy to to chip corporations to come back to produce in the United States, that is an attempt in some sense for the United States to pay for the higher wages of American workers. Uh, because you take the example of TSMC. Uh, TSMC is, uh, I think, the currently there's a, the plan is on route to open their factory in the United States uh, after the CHIPS Act was passed by the United States government. And I mean, of, of course, the only reason that TSMC is able to come to the United States and, and run a factory there uh, is because the United States is, is providing such a huge amount of subsidies to cover the increased cost of production. And that increased cost of production, of course, is because of the higher wages of workers in the United States as compared to even Taiwan. And Taiwan, of course, is, is substantially higher wages than uh, in India or China. Uh, so, I mean, the, the relation here is, is a complex one where, the, where, you know, the state has to step in because, of course, uh, politically, it's impossible for the United States to reduce workers' wages to make the United States uh, uh, competitive to produce to, to produce chips, not just, I mean, right now, the United States is still is, is designing chips and, you know, Apple designs chips and all these companies design chips. But the actual manufacturing process is so, uh, is, is a cost that, that no country, company would like to willingly bear in the United States when Taiwan, which is doing it for much cheaper, has has a history of high efficiency in it as well today. So, you know, it's an, it's an interesting situation today because, uh, and I mean, let's see in the next few years how, how uh, the CHIPS Act really fares out because, uh, I mean, currently the United States is incentives are the sole reason that that uh, TSMC and others are able to come in and produce in the United States. And I mean, for the United States to continue manufacturing chips, if it likes, to, if it wants to continue to develop, you know, chips domestically in that sense, would require you know hundreds and billions of dollars of subsidies year after year after year to 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 make up for the 
so the excess cost of production in the United States because of those high wages. Um, yeah, I hope I hope I dealt with the question. Is it, is it right if I just sorry, Joseph? I know we no, of course, of, go, uh, for, go for it. Go for it. If I just uh, continue with that sort of question, um, I had all my arms and eyes. But so, with the relation between core processes and high wages, the way that uh, I've been thinking about it recently, mainly just through Emmanuel's work, is that these core processes. This is a way to prevent the high wages and the growing wages. Um, historically, today, maybe they're not growing so much, but historically, especially, uh, to prevent these high wages from coming into competition with low wage, low wages of low wage countries. And by specializing in these sectors, which have these huge technological and skill barriers, which you described very well with regard to the semiconductor industry, and also just the huge uh, entry costs um, as well for the fixed capital investments and so on. By specializing in these sorts of industries, uh, the high wages don't have any competition from low wage countries, where otherwise low wage countries would try and compete with them and so on. So it's this, the importance of having a sector all to themselves. And Emmanuel even writes that uh, it doesn't matter in terms of capital intensity, although this is one factor leading to uh, sort of an ideal sector for high wages. He says that if a high wage country specializes in tulips and low wage countries don't specialize in this, that's just as fine for them. Um, and um, so I was wondering if you would agree that there's this importance for the high wage countries to have certain sectors where low wage countries can compete with them. Because uh, you say some, you say that um, that the the core almost by necessity must seek to protect these technologies from reaching the periphery. And I'm just one interested in the rationale for this because nowadays, you know, there's the whole topic of semiconductors. It's so so popular, and always see it in various news, analytic resources, and so on mainstream. Um, usually, there's an emphasis on the military uh, technological application, which you also say that this is the way that the, the Biden regime sort of justifies it uh, in terms of uh, legislative acts and so on. But I feel like, and, and sometimes often Marxist writers, they also kind of, they don't they mainly focus on this or sort of these technological uh, aspects. But I was wondering the, the broader social necessity for this. And I was wondering if you'd agree with this. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, we talk about Emmanuel's conception. I think uh, countries like Australia and New Zealand, I mean, I mean good examples of countries that uh, historically did not necessarily uh, participate in the production of some necessarily some cutting edge or something uh, something that no other country could do and they were prim mostly primary primary goods were, were, were what they were exporting with the rest of the world and producing uh, and uh, of course then it becomes a, it becomes a tricky question then to talk about this idea of whether it is absolutely necessary for the core to I mean the core the, the high wages are in some ways the precursor to uh, uh, a lot of processes isn't it's not necessarily true that you need to have high technology to then have high wages it's often that a high wages require the protection of things of uh, that of things that are that restrictive to enter. Uh, I don't think. I mean, I agree broadly that it, that yes, it's true in the sense that uh, historically, you take the example of uh, mm, the United Kingdom, the UK during the colonial era. Uh, then they were able to uh, strengthen their their hegemonical position in the world system, of course, through their monopoly on the early industrial process, textiles and other things that nobody else could produce, right? 
Uh, and I mean, historically, we see this trend generally where even uh, during the early ages of the exploitation of colonialism, you had uh, um, traders who were able to trade in things that nobody else could trade in in, in, in markets. So, uh, of course, the quasi-monopoly is is super important in terms of uh, of holding uh, for 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 the course something that the others can't really access. And uh, broadly speaking, I, I mean, I would agree that that uh, I mean, the argument I make in the paper, of course, is saying that. Uh, Definitionally, you would expect that the core would never want technology to leave, right? Uh, something that they can do that nobody else can do. And I mean, historically, we have seen that play out in various cases, in various situations. And, and semiconductors is one of those cases in, in a sense, because uh, of course, the debt ju justification is national interest in military and um, this idea of uh, we can't let the enemy get this into their hands and so on. But um, of course, then in, in reality, uh, the realization is that that the semiconductors is an industry that is super, super important economically and not just not just militarily and uh, economic control in those sense and, and ensuring that only you have you have the say in this in its production and it's out in its output is basically uh, super important for the core because that's what keeps the hegemony in some sense alive. And I'm not trying to say that semiconductors are necessarily the I mean of course now they are it is one of the biggest or if not the biggest uh, commodity in the world today. Uh, but even broadly in other industries that might be smaller in scope, the uh, the fact that there is nobody else in the world who can fill in that niche. And that the entry into that uh, is, is so is so impossible for the rest of the world uh, protects those uh, uh, the interests of the core and not just uh, not just the core bourgeoisie or the core state, but it's also important to, of course, the working class and the core who have trained up those skills and who have. I mean, historically, there was there were points where uh, uh, specialization and skill in you know various in various sectors were essentially only available in the core and and Emmanuel's work on technology again kind of deals with that question of how do you get people to be trained in places that don't have the technology uh, and I mean of course the monopolization of technology is itself linked to that idea where uh, I mean if you think about um, uh, let's just say science or so you, you think of this in the, in the realm of science in like 60 years ago 70 years ago uh, outside of the core there was not there was no one who really there was no real development or laboratories or innovation that was possible because uh, the core essentially had that super strong monopoly on technological innovation uh, and uh, even various other sectors look at finance or it or so on and so forth then uh, the core does try its best to ensure that uh, as little people as possible can compete with them and of course that's to prevent i mean that is again related to the idea of uh, of, of prevention of the equilibrium of wages that that the core tries because after all the core what makes up 15% of the population right uh, so it does have to in some sense ensure something is only open to 15% of the population and not a hypothetical 60 70 100 Yeah, I want to follow up on this the trend of this discussion. I, I loved how you began the analysis of the history of the semiconductor industry through its role in military production stemming out of World War II. And with the tech transfer in particular, it, it almost reminded me of uh, historically the issues in the early Industrial Revolution or in mercantilism when trade and industrial espionage were such a, a big factor. and Britain would heavily punish anyone who attempted to move uh, cotton manufacturing technology to the United States, for example. Uh, and it, it's very interesting how you point out that the U.S. initially shared the tech with Japan and then Japan shared it with South Korea. I love that whole analysis of how Japan rose using semiconductors and then offshored it to South Korea and it had its development. So I wonder, could you talk a little bit about why in your analysis, 
the U.S. would not allow that tech transfer with, with say, China, but would allow it and allow for some movement, as you said, the, um, I forget Wallerstein's exact term, but uh, promotion by invitation, as you say, for its military allies. So, um, I mean, yeah, you gave a really good example. Uh, yeah, the industrial revolution is always is a very apt comparison because almost all of the processes that we see we see occurring in these terms today has, in some sense, a comparison with with the early industrial revolution because uh, the early industrial revolution was also marked by this idea of of this of this new method and this new technology and this new technique that was essentially out of the hands of the others. So yeah, I think that's that's a good comparison. Uh, as for the the history of the United States, well, I mean. It's not that difficult to figure that out historically. I mean, the role of the United States in East Asia after World War II has a very close link to anti-communism and its whole uh, understanding of fostering that anti-communist uh, uh, you know, set of the bulwark of nations in, the, in East Asia against this imagined tide of the USSR and China. Uh, and of course, that has its history in the United States going back to the post-war occupation and, and similarly even in Korea and, and other places where uh, the United States, as a as a political measure, basically uh, decided to you know foster these economies and these countries to protect them and to develop them within its its wing, with this understanding that they'll be loyal to the United States when push comes to shove, and you know that they won't they won't be economically weak and therefore prone to a communist uprising. That's broadly, I mean, uh, the historical uh, rationale behind the United States' action there. Uh, why the United States is, of course. Uh, Uneager to share this uh, technology with the rest of the world, and 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 I'm talking about even countries that are, that are not not necessarily opposed to the United States' interest in countries like India or others who, as I highlight in my paper, have been struggling to get access to this technology, is because uh, fundamentally it's uh, I mean there's two reasons actually. Uh, fundamentally, with the case with China, it's very obvious, of course, because China is in the United States is uh, in eyes, of course, it's it's its main rival to the to being the sole hegemon of of, cap, of the capitalist world system. In the case of India and other countries, fundamentally, the rationale here is that there is just no, there's no requirement. I mean, uh, in some sense, in today's context, especially, the United States is, is, is even eager to move production out of its own allies and into its own borders for, for, for reasons that, again, has to do with the geopolitics more than anything economical. And I mean, I've showcased in the paper and in the interview just now too, like, I mean, it's highly uneconomical for the United States to to want to, you know, uh, decouple in some ways and move everything back to the United States. Uh, but it, it believes that this is the, the, the sensible thing to do from a geopolitical perspective. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it is not necessarily out of the out of U.S.'s will that it created. And I highlight that in the paper well, as well, where, where Japan's, where how, uh, when the United States began to, uh, well, corporations in the United States, with the help of the United States government, brokered really good deals with Taiwan and Japan and the corporations in Taiwan and Japan. Uh, it wasn't in their imagination that these countries would one day be able to compete with the United States. I mean, in their imagination, they were doing this to 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 keep their allies doing the the, the jobs that they didn't want to do. Uh, I highlight that with Taiwan as the example, where Fairchild kind of uh, opens up the first assembly unit in Taiwan because it wasn't affordable to have American workers do that anymore. Uh, and so they began that with the logic that uh, we'll be offshoring the parts that Americans don't want to do to this this, this cheap East Asian labor. Uh, and I mean, the result, of course, was that because these countries took that technology and that opportunity and kind of uh, really, and with Taiwan especially, it's probably the best example because in a sense, Taiwan's entire economy is centered around uh, 
uh, around the semiconductors and the technology industry. Uh, so, I mean, it's also important to understand that the United States did not do this out of some benevolence even to its own allies. It was very clearly doing this with self-interest in mind. And I mean, the, the, the corporations that licensed uh, their technology to the Japan, to Japan, to Japanese firms and to other firms. Uh, you see that in the 80s, when Japan starts to compete with the United States, they they launch a heavy slew of, of lawsuits against them, you know, which is really interesting because uh, when these firms were not competing with them and not bothering their interests and their, uh, and their share in the market, there was no issue. But of course, when Japanese firms began to compete, it became an important issue. And uh, in some sense, there's a repeat of that today with Taiwan, where, you know, where because Taiwan is so much eclipsed, the United States in that sense, in terms of production, then uh, in a sense, the United States has a problem with that. It wants to move that back into its its own control. So, uh, yeah, it's, even with its own allies, the technology transfers were not benevolent. They were with a very clear intention. Of course, then that didn't end up playing out the way that the United States and its corporations intended. And that's where, you know, you have the whole U.S.-Japan conflict in the 80s, trade conflict, and how that's linked to further tech transfers out to Korea and others. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, in a certain sense, um, U.S. trade and investment in China to begin with was sort of seen as something that wouldn't lead to what it led to today. And uh, it's also in the context of the, the Sino-Soviet split and the U.S. trying to uh, also these, these geopolitical uh, imperatives and so on. Um, and I also just wanted to say that an amazing book that I've read recently, uh, putting a fairly new book, is uh, Jim Glassman's book about uh, drums of war, drums of development, um, which is about uh, East and Southeast Asian industrialization. Really incredible book. It doesn't really have an Emanuelian perspective, although it more focuses on the uh, geopolitical, geoeconomic aspect of how exactly this invitation by promotion work. And he places more emphasis as well, well not emphasis, but he just in investigates this, uh, this aspect of it all, of the military industrial contracts for Japan during the Korean War and also for the Republic of Korea during the Vietnamese War, which is something that the authors uh, that you cite, Castley and Chiba, they don't really go into so much, although they're really good on investigating the way that selective U.S. trade opening with Korea uh, was really crucial for its industrialization. And what I found really interesting as well in Glassman's work is that he uh, looks into, obviously, there's the aspect of the U.S. wanting to make uh, Republic of Korea into this showpiece for the free world and so on and so on, but also the fact that it was Korea's um, involvement in the Vietnam War, its willingness to involve itself in the Vietnam War, there was this really huge condition for the U.S. granting it these industrial kickbacks in the, the, Brown, the Brown Memorandum, as it was known, uh, that the U.S. didn't grant to its other allies, to Philippines and to uh, Thailand and so on, which were just as much Cold War allies, but they weren't given this preferential treatment because their, their elite wasn't willing to go with the U.S. as far as it did in the Vietnam War. And then also, the you know, another, another fascinating thing about this book is that it goes into how, like you were saying, the... The fact that the U.S. wasn't always, is generally not willing to allow its allies to industrially develop much at all. And when there was the Park uh, Chung-hee coup in, in Korea, um, lots of the U.S. sort of national security and you know, the top elite were quite worried about it. They, you know, they were worried about a sort of uh, anti-market sort of tendencies and 
and there were various attempts to stop him, and, the, and some of them, they did actually stop some of his uh, different policies, the monetary reform and so on. Anyway, uh, it's just a really interesting. One thing that I sometimes wonder, this is not really a question that's necessary to answer, because uh, I'm, I'm not really sure to what extent, but um, is the extent to which Emmanuel's work doesn't take into account enough the these inter interstate relations, I suppose, and these these broader, I guess. Uh, I'm not sure if that that's his work needs to address that, uh, and whether his work comes into any contradiction with um, a look at that. But that's one thing that I sometimes wonder. But anyway, this is all leading to my question, which is, uh, I really appreciate your work for the uh, the attempt to give an answer to the limits of of uh, promotion by invitation, because um, often, you know, especially in these, I guess, semi-client or semi-client regimes in a third world, there's this this real hope, this utopia that you know will become just like South Korea. Uh, in Ukraine, this is where I lived for a while. This was a very common thing, which is why I got interested in this topic. Um, I'm, pr I'm sure that in India as well, among certain circles, there's also this idea that, you know, if, if we have to stay on the good side of the U.S. and we'll become as rich as Korea and so on. Although Korea is not, not a very nice place to live from what people uh, I know from Korea tell me. But anyway, I, I was wondering if you could give an outline uh, of how you see the limits to invitation by promotion. Why, why can't all countries become like South Korea? So um, before that, uh, you, you, you said a really interesting thing about um, kind of the limitations of Emmanuel's work and uh, I mean, uh, or rather the, the, the incapacity to deal with some questions. I think fundamentally one of the things my paper is trying to saliently argue when it, when it uses uh, uh, Emmanuel's work is that Emmanuel's work is from, from the broadest logic on technology transfer specifically, his work on the broadest sense is absolutely right. I mean, uh, if, if, if a, even the poorest of poor nations does the right national policies and does the right uh, things to kind of invite foreign capital, ideally you should see that happen. And I mean, from the from a from an ideal picture of capitalism, that is how it should work. But of course, uh, a kind of broader argument my paper is making is that uh, when India and China have tried their hardest to do what Emmanuel would have, I mean, if Emmanuel was to comment on this, might have said that yeah, they should do this if they want to gain access to technologies that they don't have. Uh, that in reality hasn't panned out. And of course, uh, that puts to the point that this idea of, um, of, of all of the neoliberal model in, in that sense, which, which imagines this, this idea of, uh, you know, if everyone plays by these rules, that things will play up in this way. I'm not, I'm not going to claim that Emmanuel was a neoliberal, not at all, but this idea of, of the corporation, of the multinational corporation as, as uh, a vehicle that's entirely detached from the interstate system and the states uh, is something that doesn't really exist. I mean, no matter, I mean, I take the case again of uh, in semiconductors, you see um, uh, in support of Emmanuel's perspective, you see IBM, which is, I mean, was once one of the biggest partners in the United States government uh, was was happy to, to when, when it became, when it, when it saw an opportunity to be for profit and for the right situation in China, it was very happy to to uh, to transfer technology and license things over. But um, of course, when when the state steps in and, and, and kind of creates uh, hurdles, of course, that that in some sense prevent you from doing anything. Then, uh, I mean, that's a very real part of, of capitalism too, and then of how core peripheral relations continue. I mean, uh, ideally, capitalism might, uh, or, this, or the laws of capitalism might might create situations that are in very in very many ways restricted by the interstate system. Uh, about promotion by invitation, 
Yeah, I mean, one of the fundamental things I argue is that even if, let's imagine that China and India were were uh, not necessarily opposed to the United States, to the hegemon, to the current hegemonical arrangement of the world, uh, there is this, there is no possibility for them to 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 see this to similarize that Korea or Japan or anybody else had in the 20th century. Uh, and one of the reasons I give for that is that if you look at the population of all these of the Asian tigers and the others who who are considered to be the the, the gold standards of 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 those countries that saw dramatic improvements in their conditions after the neoliberal era, you'll notice that their populations are, are tiny compared to the populations of countries like India or China, or even countries like let's go Indonesia, Malaysia, Nigeria, all of the countries that today are, 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 are I mean the the, the major semi-peripheral countries of the world in the global south, their populations are, are huge. I mean, hundreds of millions at the least, and billions in the case of, of India and China, right? So. Uh, I mean, one of the things that Minky Lee writes about in in his book on on uh, on China, he talks about how uh, China was when China entered the world system, which was not uh, or formally entered capitalism proper and opened up itself to the world economy. Uh, it's simult- It's not. It's it's around the same time that countries like Korea and others were were really uh, able to move up in the world. They had sort dramatic increases in do- in domestic wages and income. And he talks about how this was able to be captured really easily by the sudden entry of, you know, hundreds of millions of Chinese uh, low-wage laborers uh, who were able to make up for that dramatic increase in, in consumption wages for some part of the world. Uh, and of course, the difference here is in terms of numbers. You know, you have you have uh, dozens of millions of people enter the core, whereas you have, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds, I mean, billions of people in the periphery to capture that. But if those billions of people in the periphery and you take the cases of India and China, were to start consuming and earning incomes, even even comparable to Taiwan, I'm not talking about the richest countries in the core. Uh, fundamentally, that is unsustainable in the world system. I mean, f- uh, where is the, that surplus going to come from? Uh, definitely not from the pockets of the actual capitalist class. Uh, it has to come from uh, the exploitation of some periphery somewhere, which has dramatically low wages that produce goods for the consumption of those with higher wages. And of course, uh, if you have two or three billion people enter from India and China, for example, into poor levels of consumption, then that, I mean, that's fundamentally unsustainable ecologically and economically because there just isn't enough people to exploit further at that point. So, um, I mean, realistically speaking, promotion by invitation, it's still possible today, but I mean, you have to have very special criteria. You have to be a country of specific size or specific requirement uh, of specific use. And, and I mean, uh, the large, I mean, the semi-peripheries of the world don't really fit into that picture at all. Um, none of them, uh, I mean, I, I give the case and I have an upcoming paper talking about this. I talk about how, and you talked about how in India, um, there might be some people who, who clamor for uh, a, a pro-United States perspective. Uh, interestingly enough, after India liberalized in 1991, uh, you do see the rise of this of this section at the top 5-10% of the income bracket that actually earns huge wages i mean i mean wages that are uh, uh like you know much closer to the core than the rest of the country uh, and this is a phenomenon that has that occurs in china too where you have this top percentage who capture really high wages you know 20 30 40 50000 dollars easily as uh, as their annual income in that top sections uh, which puts them of course much closer to their relatives their, their equivalents in in the first world than and i mean in the case of india for example you have the average wage being uh, uh, I mean, I know it in rupees and dollars. It's like it's nothing. It's it's uh, 
less than like a few thousand dollars a year. And you have top section, which includes those who benefited from, from uh, this opening up of India, which includes IT workers and you have business professionals. They earn $50,000 pretty easily, which is which makes them uh, a very you know privileged section in India. And largely this, this I mean, the reality of, of modern capitalism is exactly that, that you have in the semi-peripheries and in the countries that, are, that have hundreds of millions of people, you have just a handful of, million of pe- millions of people who actually can gain, you know, dramatically higher wages, who can consume at levels not too dissimilar from the core. Uh, and that is kind of the fundamental limitation of the promotion by invitation or any other uh, thing that, I mean, at maximum, you will have a few people in your country who will be able to consume like the coal or able to who will have wages like the coal. But for the vast majority of the country and for the national economy and, you know, in the broader characteristics of a country, uh, you can't really, there's, there's really no scope for, for significant uh, economic mobility. It's only open for the, for the very small minority. I want to ask about your analysis with Emmanuel as well to go further into that on text tra- on tech transfer uh, you have a quote where you say that um, summarizing Emmanuel's analysis as capital induced to act against the quote national interest in the pursuit of profit and you even have a footnote that that discusses how Emmanuel doesn't even necessarily differentiate between foreign and national capital like that's not a differentiation he considers. I'm curious with this analysis that you're mapping on the particular scale of semiconductors, right? When you look at how, even how you talked about how fabulous manufacturing went from being something of a, a taboo within the semiconductor industry, but all of a sudden by the 2000s, Apple, Nvidia, they had become like, they had, they had risen to prominence on the back of fabulous manufacturing. With Emmanuel's central contradiction of the, of capital moving against the so-called national interest, as we're moving out of, and I think this is part of your analysis as well, out of the stage of neoliberal globalization and possibly back towards a, an interstate conflict period, how do you see the particularities of semiconductor production? Do you think people will retreat or companies will retreat back from fabulous manufacturing will fight to maintain their production at a uh, at the global value chain level um, what do you think the companies themselves will do as the US seeks to act on its national interest so um, there's a few different things to address here so first um, the point of fabulous the, the, the development of fabulous manufacturing uh, itself is related to uh, the monopolization of certain parts. So, I mean, if you, if you think about uh, our white Taiwan, for example, specifically Taiwan became so successful and today is, I mean, the world's single largest player in terms of high-tech production is specifically because uh, all of the sections that have very strong uh, IP rights and, and property rights and protections from that from that side were already all largely monopolized by by the core. And the core historically, and, and I mean, as is generally the case, and Emmanuel talks about this in his technology work, R&D work and research work has a, less, has, has a history there. For example, if India today opens up labs to kind of to try to attempt to say, push for the, for the next uh, uh, cutting edge type of technology, it has to essentially make up for like a century of work that has occurred in other places. Uh, and so fundamentally, the core, when when we talk about this period of even the 80s, 90s, when, when, for example, Taiwan, Korea and others had by this time had a suitably skilled workforce, you know, uh, with engineering degrees and all this training who are very capable to, to carry out, you know, 
uh, manufacturing or any part of the semiconductors industry, the gap essentially became that uh, uh, R and D and core develop and, and development of core IP and other parts of of, of what's what's really important in the designing stage of of semiconductors had too strong a presence in the core, where where essentially the I mean for the longest period of time. There was nowhere else in the world that there was any development in that sector happening. And the reason that fabulous uh, manufacturing was able to rise up is because uh, fundamentally the only thing that that uh, is is one needs to really hold in any industry today, especially to to make the real profits, is to be the holder of rights, the holder of of that who, those who can license. Uh, and I mean, automobile is another great example because uh, even though the production of automobiles is happening in the rest of the world, all the rights and all the patents and all the IP rights and the new machinery, all of that is still developed in the core by the core and and licensed out by the core to clients in the semi-periphery or periphery. Uh, and that is one important thing to remember about uh, about you know the, the kind of the hierarchy of the process of semiconductor production because designing is still by far the most important. Uh, and you know the largest companies are still the ones who don't do any manufacturing but just Hold on to design, and that's again Apple, Nvidia, AMD, all of the big players. Their essential part is in R&D and um, you know IP rights and other things of that sort. Uh, coming to the question of, of, of today and, and what that seems like, uh, you know, people in the industry and the one good thing about studying semiconductors is that people in the industry put out really detailed reports. You can find uh, information which is extremely extremely detailed and. Uh, I mean, to be and I, and I make this conclusion in, in, in towards the end of, of the text. Uh, it's pretty obvious that in reality, uh, a complete decoupling of the industry is not is not really possible. I mean, uh, even the basic process of asking some sections to open up factories in the core, which is what the United States is doing, is costing so much. Uh, uh, fundamentally, it's not it's not really a feasible thing in the long term. And what, what what to me seems to be the more feasible outcome here is that uh, because of this fear of and of course this national interest and all of these things, are of course the 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 dominating factor in the discourse and the conversation in government and other places too. Fundamentally, what's what seems to be the most uh, the most likely outcome is that the core basically ensures that nobody outside of those who are currently in the industry get realistic access to the industry. That's that's fundamentally what the goal is here. And uh, what's interesting about this is that, um, funnily enough, when I first submitted this paper for publication, uh, a lot of the things I talked about hadn't yet happened. And I luckily got a chance to revise them and added a lot of events that have happened very recently, including uh, I, I talked about these upcoming rules and regulations. They still aren't in place. But for example, the United States is putting forward rules that mean that, that, mean that anyone, any machinery uh, that has any components ever built and designed in the United States can no longer be sold internationally without consent from the United States, right? So uh, fundamentally, that means that, for example, even if uh, one of US, the other core states decided or, or found a deal uh, to trade with, with China or with anybody else without the permission of the United States, uh, the United States' final say or else you face sanctions, right? Uh, and fundamentally, what the United States is trying to do is fundamentally, it understands that, uh, realistically speaking, how the industry is already now to some extent. Uh, it can't really do too much to undo that. I mean, it's trying to, through things like uh, the CHIPS Act and other things. But fundamentally, its primary primary goal seems to be to prevent anybody else from entering it now. Uh, and it's doing that through all these protections. And uh, it's not just China, of course, because China is, of course, the, 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 the largest opponent to the United States. But the case of India is especially uh, interesting because... Uh, India failed entirely to to, to gain uh, a tech partner for a really big project, and uh, and interestingly enough, that project is ten years outdated compared to what TSMC is doing. So it's not even like India is trying to enter the direct cutting edge. Even trying to enter what was a ten year old version of the industry, 
uh, it fails to gain support from the core because the industry is now kind of in this in this you know like closed off mode where it it really is uh, i mean the states and the governments are kind of very serious about ensuring that there is no no peripheralization of this so i think that's more likely to be the the future of the industry where it, it it's essentially it's at its limit in terms of its peripheralization and any further peripheralization will at most be for testing and packaging not really for production or 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 design my um next question was do with your vision for the future in a more um say maybe hopeful or aggressive sense because you do mention the likelihood of talk defining wars so which i think we can definitely see up on the horizon but you also do mention towards the beginning um the attempts by the chinese government during its less market-oriented phase of development uh, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s to create its own domestic semiconductor industry. Um, obviously, this was much less developed than what was happening uh, in the core, but it still was perhaps uh, well, definitely more developed than other comparable uh, peripheral countries over the time. And then once China uh, opened up in uh, terms of trade to the capitalist world, this nascent semiconductor industry disappeared under competition. And now it's returned. But you do make this emphasis that uh, China, which I think could definitely be said to be the most relatively successful, uh, let's say, capitalist developmentalist state currently in existence, maybe you know, currently in existence for sure. Um, it still isn't able to come really close to the uh, technological level of the core. And you talk about um, various uh, difficulties of China in, in this respect, despite huge steps forward and relative success, there's still, it's still, you know, in the generational gap you talk about. Um, and I was wondering what, what do you think if there were, I think we, we can, if we just exclude, you know, the sort of world revolution type of thing, which we can sort of agree historically, it doesn't really have any bearing, but if there was something similar, let's say to the 20th century, where certain parts of the, of the world um, undergo some kind of revolutionary progressive transformation but there's still the core continues to exist um and these these sections take place in relatively poor countries and so on what do you think would be um the the progressive uh, I guess step to be taken with regards to these core processes and so on would it, because i mean i guess my question is how would it really differ from what china is doing at the moment i guess that that's my sort of question um, yeah. Yeah. So um, fundamentally, yeah. I mean, you, the example of China's semiconductor industry prior to uh, you know the Deng reform period and so on, um, it was a very fledgling industry. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, it didn't even as early as I mean back then, semiconductors globally were, were already were, were quite fledgling in in the sixties and so on. But um, uh, yeah, the China essentially till today, really, um, it's not really that different today. Uh, fundamentally, has never been able to uh, give up its dependency on on imports from from the core for for semiconductors, and that's something that, despite all efforts, and that's one of the things I can try to argue that I mean, with very conscious efforts from the two thousands onwards, uh, has fundamentally failed in in various regards to to give up that dependency to the core in that sense. Um, on the question of 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 uh, 
you know, developing one's own technology or, or that being something that's possible. Of course, uh, in capitalism specifically, uh, practically every innovation happens at the top. And that's, of course, because of the immense uh, the immense cost of R&D and the, the, I mean, the fact that only the core has enough uh, capacity to invest into R&D and have all these researchers and all these labs and equipment that nobody else has. And, and, and fundamentally, then that's that's one of the things about capitalism. And Emmanuel is pretty conscious about that when he writes in, uh, about technology transfer that, you know, um, uh, an indigenous development of technology to, that can catch up with the core is is um, more or less an impossibility. It's not, it's not really um, uh, ever likely possible. And I make that same point in my paper where uh, I mean, unless there's some some kind of extreme luck or, or something of that sort, uh, or you know, some world affecting crises and collapses or something of that sort, there is really no no likelihood that te technology indigenously developed without uh, uh, interaction with the rest of the world can develop. Um, now, talking about an ideal future and, and what that should entail or, or what um, a non-capitalist uh, alternative to this or any of these things it would be. Uh, that becomes a tricky question, of course, because, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, when you look at the history of the Soviet Union and of Maoist China, uh, I mean, and, and uh, Emmanuel talks about it a lot in, in his tech book about how uh, he quotes a lot from Mao himself, where Mao repeatedly talks about how uh, the USSR uh, had a significant role in, in, in transferring technology and bringing over skilled technicians and uh, all of these things that are super important for China's, uh, for China itself to, you know, to get past that extreme poverty agricultural base into having some kind of manufacturing and some kind of uh, uh, progress and that's of course important for the base that that was later uh, um, in a sense exploited by global capital uh, and even the case of japan and korea is not that different where of course uh, you know korea did really no r d of its own and was able to to almost entirely get technology from the outside and then with that do what it could uh, and Emmanuel, in a sense, seems to agree with this perspective that, uh, and I mean, of course, for people who, did, who, who, you know, critics of Emmanuel would love to call him some kind of neoliberal or some kind of capitalist, but uh, it's obviously not true. He is also fundamentally grasping with the same question that, uh, as a Marxist and one who imagines a world that isn't that is that is free of capitalist uh, relations, uh, realistically speaking, how does the third world or how does anybody else uh, access technology? And uh, in that sense, I mean, Emmanuel broadly, uh, you know, likes. I mean, he's very clearly talking about the, the real historical cases of Ho Chi Minh's Vietnam or Mao Zedong's China, and he's trying to trying to understand what what they had to do and what they will what. Uh, what will be required and, and fundamentally it seems to me that um, yeah like I, within the within the capitalist system there is no other option but in some sense to lure in technology in one way or the other and that has to happen through uh, almost entirely through luring in MNCs because uh, like Emmanuel argues they are the primary you know convector of convection of uh, of technology uh, on China today then uh, you know of course there's the China is doing what it has to do to gain uh, to to gain technology to gain anything really to improve its condition in the modern world today. And um, of course, I'm not I'm no um, I have I, I'm as critical of China as I'm of India or as I am of any other semi-peripheral state. And of course, for their excesses in in various things. But within the logic of uh, of capitalism, there's really no other option. That's that's one thing that is you have to state like. Uh, an imagination of an indigenous development doesn't exist. If we are to talk about uh, some socialist imagination of this question, then it becomes, uh, uh, again, a tricky question, you know, because I think Emmanuel's written, I don't remember where he wrote about this, uh, 
was it in the tech book? I might be wrong, but uh, he talks about how it would have to essentially be a controlled uh, invitation of technology, where you have to be, where you know, if you are if you are a country that's that is serious or, or a nation that or, or anything uh, serious about developing uh, socialism or moving away from capitalist relations, you still will have to, in some way or the other, invite in the technology that that puts you at a disadvantage. And you know, whether will that require the state to control it? Will that require um, something else that is? Uh, you know, many people do argue that China is doing that uh, today, uh, and of course, I mean the prominent position of of you know Marxists who are who are in, who support China today, they, they do say that China is doing what it has to do, and then it can look at socialism. Uh, of course, to me that I mean, if, if you're asking me personally, then I'm not so convinced that China or any other state today is looking towards a socialist future. That's that's a separate question entirely. Uh, whether China is, is uh, has legitimately a vision towards a socialist future. Uh, is a separate question that uh, I mean, we uh, have no. I mean, I can't really answer that. It would be good if China has that 2050 socialist vision. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I do think that fundamentally, the technology question is one that Marxists do avoid. Uh, and and even when you consider the history of the USSR and the history of Maoist China, then the question of how they acquire technology is uh, is a very important one, and that's one that. Uh, that you have to contend with because, I mean, yes, the joint dictatorship of the proletariat of oppressed nations and all of these things uh, uh, ideally would be amazing. But even if all the poorest countries in the world got together, they would still be at a technological deficiency and incapacity to produce what the core is producing. And of course, the core is not going socialist, right? It's not, it's not, we don't have that uh, hope of Marxist era where England will be socialist and then will help the rest of the world out. Uh, that seems uh, incredibly unlikely. So. Uh, I will say that it's, it is a question that's, that's uh, uh, I mean, Emmanuel does grapple with it himself that a socialist uh, organization or socialist government or anything of that sort will have to be pretty careful in controlling uh, uh, foreign imports and will have to lure them in, but, you know, in some sense, uh, ensure that that it's still under the control of of, uh, of a socialist government and other things of that sort. I don't remember where he wrote it. It might have been the tech book. Um, Peter, do you do you have any more questions? Not really. I think I, I think I ask basically everything. Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of there are lots of really interesting stuff yeah. in this um, in this article. I really liked how you just sort of clearly went through the different statistics about the semiconductor. Um, we had a situation in the semiconductor situation. Um, one thing that I found really, I mean, this is, I don't really know if we need to, I don't have that many more questions. I, I'm fine to chat for a little bit more if that's okay with you. I'm going to go to sleep yeah, sure, pretty sure. soon. But um, yeah, I mean, like one, st one thing that I also liked was this uh, note about Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan um, and uh, the role of the Second World War in terms of weakening uh, the Americans in the automobile history, automobile industry. Um, it's kind of a thing that lots of dependency theorists, uh, you know, generally economic historians talk about with Latin America as well during World War II. I think in other parts, but especially with Latin America. I mean, Gunda Frank always kind of wrote about this with World War II and World War One, with these kind of brief periods of Latin American economic, more like industrialization, because they just didn't have competition from the first one. Um, and uh, and it's interesting the I guess the the importance of these, you know, sort of. Historical points of these sort of fascist regimes, you know, in uh, uh, Japan and in, in in Germany, in terms of creating this, I guess, basic industrialization. Well, not creating it in terms of, but you know, playing a very important role 
Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, something else. And I, I think it's really great that you wrote this article, you know, because so often people like still kind of have this idea that, you know, like, oh, well, just the theory is dead because of South Korea and stuff. And, and I think that, uh, I mean, well, the theory is really broad and includes a bunch of things, but I really think that, you know, Emmanuel's work really allows us to understand uh, the conditions of possibility for this. Most importantly, like the limits of this, you know, and instead of, you know, with most obviously liberal theory thinks there's no limits to this. Um, but then lots of Marxist work, they don't really explain, I guess, the objective limits of this. Uh, and I feel like only Emmanuel can actually give a basis for that. You know, you brought up that thing about the walls there. Uh even outside of the context of of um of in general the the possibilities for economic development and other things that those moments offer i think um it is pretty interesting that i mean just how much of 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 uh, anti systemic uh, possibilities emerge out of these crisis situations and i mean thinking about it today in the sense you know, there's a lot of discourse on of course on on wars and, and multipolarity and all of these different questions that come up today uh i think fundamentally that is something that 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 uh uh, I think is important to look at is that, you know, the moments of crisis do allow for anti-systemic creation. And of course, the fascist mo fascist movements in some sense were, of course, anti-systemic. And then, uh, of course, World War One and its relation to the Russian Revolution and World War Two to the Chinese Revolution. Uh, fundamentally, yeah, I mean, it, it's only in moments of that, like that where, you know, for whatever reason, uh, the, the regular working of the of the world system and the and the interstate relations within it are, are kind of frozen or put into crisis that you really see possibilities for for, for drastic change and uh, not to promote some accelerationist vision of uh, of what has to be done but uh, I mean realistically speaking uh, I mean everybody's aware of the fact that the hegemony of the United States what it was in the 60s and 70s where you know uh, uh, minimum wage earners earned like you know 100 times the wage of somebody else and all of these things that existed that 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 at its peak the us's hegemony and of course in, in decline today and um, i mean i think that that fundamentally for people who are uh, anti-imperialist and for people who are uh, who have a marxist persuasion then yeah i mean i i, I do think that yeah like the moments of crisis are the ones where where the most uh, where we have to be opportune in that sense so yeah i think that's Definitely a really true point. Um, yeah, that's, that's one, one thing that I, I was also wondering about is like, you know, there's kind of, I mean, this is, I'm, I, I don't know enough about all these different things to say, but you know, there's, there's kind of this, uh, this idea that I sometimes see, um, and I mean, it sounds kind of cool. Uh, to me, but you know that, that China will invade, like do a special military operation against Taiwan to like take the factory, right? And then and then like if they take the factory, then China now has like global economic domination. It's like really cool, and it sounds awesome, you know? Like man, they should just do it. They should do it tomorrow. But is that actually true? Or like from the impression that I kind of get from the article is that not really, because it's kind of uh, it's not actually doing the design there, right? Like they, they'll take it, but it's kind of kind of the same situation as now and also wouldn't like if they don't have the design because i mean obviously the u.s would just cut off the design stuff to china at that point uh and it's all being designed in silicon valley i mean it would help them i'm sure because there are all these sort of different machines that aren't been getting to them other otherwise but it wouldn't be like this kind of giant game changer right I mean, it's important to remember that TSMC, which uh, is the biggest producer, is, um, I mean, it entirely works on contracts when like Apple and AMD and NVIDIA and all these guys kind of come and say, hey, we need like, like, here's the model, here's the specifications, we need like 
one billion unit of this by this. I mean, it's like that's how it works, you know. So, um, I mean, I guess in a sense that that I mean, even before you get to China, that that kind of explains that Taiwan itself is is you know in that sense, of course, is a client state of the core in that sense where uh, its production is dependent on the requirements of of the corporations that that demand this of of uh, TSMC and. You know, if China does uh, invade and take over TSMC's factory and all these things that that I know that Americans love to love to you know uh, panic over. Um, yeah, I mean, the realistic outcome there is just that. Uh, well, if that does happen, then I am pretty sure that Apple and AMD and others are not going to be giving China that contract anymore, right? <laughs> so I, I mean, it's not. I don't think that's that's gonna. I mean, specifically with the example of semiconductor itself is gonna is gonna somehow. Uh, you know, turn China's fortunes from like being a huge net importer into suddenly being, you know, uh, the champion of the industry. That's that's not possible. Uh, and I mean, again, the, the 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 fundamental point of my paper really is that um, at the end of the day, like this this uh, in the semi periphery. I mean, of course, me living in India, uh, uh, this is a rhetoric you see all the time. You know that. Uh, if you follow this and this step, then like we said earlier, if you if you do this and this, then you know we will one day we will we will be like South Korea, we will be like the U.S., we will compete with them. Uh, and I mean, I think the fundamental, I mean, the larger argument of my paper where I take, I mean, semiconductors really is just an example here, is that uh, not only is it is it something that's in, in in direct contention with the interests of the current core, but it's just it's just ecologically and economically is not feasible like uh, uh, that is the, the the sobering reality of the matter i mean no matter how much we would like uh, india or china or any other of semiconductor con- semi uh, peripheral country to 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 replay or to move up in the world it just can't and that's i mean i think that is something i mean for people who have this hope of this multipolarity or this hope of uh, or like uh, uh, i don't know india or china or some other country will will you know, emerge as the winner of the 21st century or any other perspective of that sort. Uh, I think the sobering realization has to occur that that just isn't fundamentally possible and not within not within the way that capitalism works today. And, and I mean, uh, even, and I make this argument, which is that, you know, uh, even if the entirety of the core became semi-peripheral and the current semi- and the semi-periphery entered into the core, it still wouldn't work because they're just the semi-peripheral population is just too large. You know, uh, India and China, their populations are are, are unbelievably drastic, like huge. I mean, the entirety of the core today is less is what uh, 16, 17 percent of the population at best, and uh, India and China themselves are 20, 20 percent each. You know, so uh, I think fundamentally the question that has to be grappled with today is uh, that. Mobility within the world system is not really itself an outcome or, or, an, or an out that's going to liberate people. Uh, there, have, there are very clear hard limits for it. Uh, and those hard limits are, are, I mean, essentially, we are very close to approaching them. And, and I'm not even talking about from an ecological perspective, where ecologically speaking, the, the current arrangement of the world already is, we are way, way past uh, the hard limit ecologically. Uh, but even on a pure economic basis, uh, you know, where this idea of, Everyone's wages can can keep rising, and you know, if at one point everyone will be rich, uh, I mean, of course, that's that's an impossibility. And so, uh, you know, and in some way, this is uh, a sobering lesson for people who who do cheer for this imagination of of a multipolar world that is somehow, you know, uh, gonna be as wealthy and as uh, luxurious as the current core life, so the current core setup. That just is impossible, and I think. That is something very concrete, and and especially in terms of the ecological crises we see today, uh, that becomes ever more important. And 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 the, and the unfortunate thing is, and and I'm saying this as uh, my experiences in India, is that 
there really aren't any Marxists or any uh, progressives or anybody else really uh, dealing with this question, with this fundamental reality that uh, you might have people say, yeah, wage differentiation exists, uh, but their argument is that, well, uh, you know, we want to climb up and not have that wage differentiation anymore. And, and fundamentally, that, that just isn't possible. And that's kind of kind of the issue, I think, that uh, in most muscles, in almost the entirety of the second periphery, to my understanding, everyone's imaginations are that we want to become rich. We will be rich one day. Uh, and yeah, that's just, that isn't possible. No matter what you do, no matter what happens, there's, you can have a section of your population be rich. And I think India is an ex excellent example because, uh, yeah, and since 1991, the, the section of India that has benefited from global capitalism is 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 quite rich. I mean, they are. are I mean, you if you live in the West, you probably know a lot of Indians who are from India and are, are as rich as anybody else. Because yeah, you can uh, that that section is earns wages that are essentially no different from the core. But that is the reality that as a nation, that just isn't possible. The last thing that uh, I was wondering, with thanks to the whole thing, the importance of the core process and why is it important. Uh, with the semiconductors, you may always hear about the military importance of them. And I guess intuitively, as someone who hasn't really read that much about it, uh, I get this idea that you know, if you have the top semiconductors, this means that when there's going to be a world war uh, in Silicon Valley, they'll just press this button and all of the I don't know, Russian and Chinese you know, fighter jets, they'll just sort of explode. <laughs> or like this big body, like they'll like they'll they'll throw the person in the seat out of the out of the cockpit and it'll be like this big, big like uh anyway. But um but that's a very Hollywood like, conception of it. I'm afraid it's been affected by the imperialist propaganda. Um I don't know what the correct the correct like Soviet com comedic uh moment would be some kind of you know, interesting idiom that sort of is said at this moment, but there's no jump gag, but they just make this sort of little line that everyone starts quoting for the next 500 years <laughs> in Russia and Ukraine. But anyway, and it makes no sense unless you've sort of lived there for, you know, your whole life. And you have that. But um, anyway, but right now, you know, in the Russia-Ukraine war, you know, you had this whole idea that all oh, Russia will be cut out and it can't get the these semi these these important chips. But you know, they they're using them from the washing machines and stuff, right? And they just use and they're bypassing the sanctions to get these. And these these are semiconductors, right? If I'm if I'm not, yeah, yeah, these just basic ones. Yeah. And they're sort of they're doing they're doing fine. And um, and generally, I mean, we've seen with the Russia Ukraine war at least is that the technology isn't really isn't the only isn't. The most important factor, really. I mean, obviously, it is an important factor, but having domestic industrial base is really important, uh, and a bunch of other different stuff. Um, so, I'm wondering, like, to, to what extent is it really that important to have? I mean, obviously, it gives it. it it's more. It's better to have the best superconductor, you know, design applications and so on, but. Is it really so crucial as it's made out to be uh, in terms of, I guess, this, this military use, for instance? Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I'll, it's it's absolutely true that, um, and I mean, in any industry, really, that the cutting edge is never unnecessary, of course. I mean, the much, almost the entirety of the world in, in every factor of consumption does not have any uh, 
use for the cutting edge. The cutting edge, of course, is, is, is used in, in a very specific set of things. Uh, but in the case of semiconductors, the issue with semiconductors specifically and why it's it's uh, so uniquely important, even more than something like vehicles or any other, you know, the standard industry uh, is uh, that fundamentally some part of the other of semiconductors, I mean, some section of the other of your, of your life has a requirement of semiconductors. And yeah, I mean, you can get by with using really old things. I mean, you take the example of various countries, I mean, not just Russia now, but you look at countries like um, like North Korea today. I mean, they're using a lot of old tech in in, in way, and they're fine. Like, there's not there's not really like uh, North Koreans are, are devoid of a happy life. They're, they're using old, really old cell phones. They're using older things. Uh, you take the example of India prior to liberalization. In India, there was only one type of vehicle, and I mean, I think vehicles are also a good example. A bunch of a bunch of countries basically used one model of vehicle or a few model of vehicles for like 20, 30, 40 years because they just didn't have all the new fancy models that the Americans were driving. Uh, in India, that, that model of car is called an ambassador. It was uh, the sole model you could purchase for 20, 30 years, for example. Uh, but the issue at hand really is that uh, in capitalism, there's a requirement to uh, to innovate, to have the latest. And I think example of... Uh, uh, Say, for example, 4G, 5G, Wi-Fi technology. You have uh, these kind of things that are that are. I mean, in some sense, super important to. Uh, uh, I mean, national economies in a broad sense. I mean, in India, for example, uh, the onset of 4G as as a technology that was available in India basically meant that uh, Indian India had went from about um, I think 80 million people who were. Uh, who had internet access to i think uh, of nearly a billion people now i think i think like it's over a billion maybe i'm not sure about the numbers but and this is in the last decade is not a thing from from long back you know and um you know there's no denial that i mean people were living fine it's not like the that internet has solved people's issues or that or any of that stuff but of course it's an important thing that that uh i mean every everyone needs to consume in one way or the other and that uh, even the cutting edge things are becoming, I mean, the cutting edge is becoming more important in the sense of uh, you have, you know, AI automation, you have all these machine learning and these like up and coming industries that, uh, I mean, people are convinced are, are you know, uh, super important in terms of the future of, of industry and manufacturing and, you know, uh, in one way or the other from the very lowest end to the higher end. I mean, semiconductor specifically, the reason why, I mean, uh, it's so in the limelight and always discussed in the media and all of these things is because, at the end of the day, it is an industry that plays into a lot of things. I mean, I, I, in my opinion, it is at least, if not more important than, you know, petrol or steel or, you know, things that are, are fundamental to a nation or, or to any nation being able to, to uh, you know, have access to, to the basics of life. I mean, at this point, even in much of the th third world and semi-peripheries and so on, uh, a telephone, a phone of some sort is considered a, a requirement. Like you do need to have a phone, uh, which wasn't a thing, you know, some decades ago, uh, of course. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's no denying that it's, that it is very important. Uh, yeah, of course you can live without it. And I mean, ideally in a world, in, in a future world, a lot of the things that we, that we feel required in society would not be required. I mean, that is, uh, kind of the excess of capitalism, but, um, as a technology in today's world, yeah, I mean, any no country would would be would be happy to be without it. I mean, that's that's fundamentally it. You do require it. That's fair, and I guess you know, in in terms of uh, historic world wars, it's not been. I guess it's always you know these economic factors are obviously a huge factor and often a deciding factor. Um, and it's not just a simple binary thing of having it or not having it, but it's also 
uh, how much of it you have and so on and so on and your ability to access it as well geographically and so on and so on. Anyway, it's a very interesting question. Um, Joseph, you probably have to head off now, right? I, I do, but this was a really excellent discussion that I loved. Uh, I, I really have been looking for something like this on the semiconductors because I've been trying to understand them better. So this article was really amazing to to get to read and uh, and understand the industry. I feel like I have a better grasp over it. Um, I'd love to follow up. Maybe we can do more discussions because I think we're also, like I mentioned, the Emanuel Association, we're definitely looking for people who have this knowledge and are willing to like talk about it more, popularize this information, um, whether through writing or through more podcasts. So we should definitely follow up and continue discussions. We can talk about something of your choice. Uh, yeah. I mean, my uh, long-term vision, at least, is, I mean, Emmanuel Wallerstein, I mean, sorry, Emmanuel, Wallerstein. <laughs> uh, none of them uh, have, have uh, surprisingly enough, for whatever reason, have never really um, gained an audience in India, which is, yeah. I mean, I know in Latin America, for example, uh, they're hugely popular, you know, mm. um, uh, but in India, especially, they're like, I mean, really unknown. Nobody really knows them. And uh, neither in, in economics uh, or in sociology or any anything mm. really. So, uh, I mean, it, it is it is a, <laughs> an imagined goal of mine to kind of, at least begin uh, uh, um, some kind of uh, literature and discourse and analysis, at least of India and of, I mean, various things from these perspectives. Because, yeah. uh, I mean, my, my, I, have a, I have a work coming up that discusses this in more depth. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a big issue here because even the questions of wage differentiation, forget even internationally, even within a country, what that really means. And yeah. these kind of things are not really talked about. There's this, uh, th I mean, from the Marxist lens, it's a very orthodox position of, you know, just that work is the world unite and yeah, right. uh, this focus on, on industrial workers, which in India, for example, makes up what, like a percentage of the population, uh, like the yeah. formal, uh, you know, non-contractual permanent industrial workers right. have always yeah. been the focus of Marxist organization. So, you know, there is a, a weakness in terms of, of dealing with the reality of capitalism in various ways, uh, I think, yeah. especially in India. Uh, so, yeah, um, we can have a chat. I would love to help with any uh, furthering of the manual agenda. Fantastic. Great. Well, yeah, let, let's stay in touch. I'll also send an email after this uh, with like an invitation to, to that group. Um, and let's keep our Discord chat and just keep discussing this stuff. Absolutely. Fantastic. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank, thank you. you and take care and sleep well, Peter. See you next time. I will. Yeah, see you guys. Right. Have a good night. Bye. Good night. Bye. Bye.